Hello, and welcome back to Modern World History. We're going to return to the Great Depression. We're about halfway through the modern crisis. Uh, in the United States, bread lines became common. Although the Republican president, Herbert Hoover, who had been elected in 1928, insisted that things weren't really as bad as they appeared to be. Uh, Hoover was sort of expected to be able to do something about this because he was known to be a very good administrator. And uh, he was the person, or he was one of the people, who helped to rebuild Europe after the First World War. Ironically, he didn't do such a good job this time. And shanty towns um, and tent villages appeared all over the country and were ironically nicknamed Hoovervilles. Uh, the American Legion, formed in 1919 by World War I veterans, began agitating for the early payment of military bonuses that had been awarded at the end of the Great War, uh, but were not to be redeemed until 1945 by the soldiers who had gotten them. A bonus army, as it was called, formed and decided to march on uh, Washington to demonstrate uh, and they set up a Hooverville of their own in Washington, across the Potomac from the Capitol. Uh, many of them also camped on the lawn outside the Capitol building. President Hoover ordered his Secretary of War to disperse the protesters. Uh, and in July of 1932, U.S. troops, armed with tanks and machine guns, attacked the Bonus Army and burned their camp, killing a few of them along the way, killing a few of their former comrades in arms in this process. Uh, needless to say, Hoover lost the 1932 election to the Democratic challenger Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who issued an executive order almost immediately on his inauguration, enrolling 25,000 of these veterans into the Civilian Conservation Corps. Uh, and then in 1936, Congress did pass a bill authorizing early payment of nearly $2 billion in World War I bonuses. Now, to make matters worse during this early period of the Depression, a drought in the Great Plains in the early 1930s created an agricultural disaster. Uh, the Russian Revolution, as you may recall, in World War I had uh, impacted European farm production, as you might expect it to, and had driven up the prices of American grain in international markets. Uh, and while that had happened, marginal land on the western side of the plains, in the high plains, in areas like western Kansas and Nebraska and Oklahoma and northwestern Texas, had all been put under the plow. Grazing land had been taken, marginal land had been taken to farm. Cropland in this region doubled between 1900 and 1920, and then tripled again between 1925 and 1930. As European agriculture began to recover at the end of the war, when European farmers got back to work, grain prices on international markets began to drop. So, ironically, 
U.S. farmers, some of them planted even more to try to earn the same amount of income on more volume of now lower priced grain. Now plowing fields for annual crops of corn and wheat is such a common farming practice that it seems normal to us and we don't think much of it. And it seemed normal to the farmers to continue this practice as they moved westward. Uh, however, on the high plains, especially on the western plains, perennial grasses had evolved to find water deep in the soil and to hold on to it. Uh, plowing exposed the soil to the sun and to the wind, and it cut the roots that had been able to trap that moisture and had been able to bind the soil together. The western edge of the prairie is actually a completely different ecosystem from the eastern edge by the Great Lakes where these farmers had learned their techniques. But the change in climate is very gradual. Although many farmers moving west to change this high plains rangeland into cultivated land failed to notice it, rainfall was much scarcer in the West and the wind blew much harder. Uh, those who did notice it were reassured by the experts that, quote unquote, rain would follow the plow. Of course, that was mostly just boosterism and wishful thinking. Rain doesn't follow the plow. The water that evaporates from the ground doesn't form clouds directly overhead that drop that rain back down. So between 1933 and 1935, drought struck the area, or really actually arid conditions just returned to the area. And over a half million people were left homeless when their topsoil blew away. In a single storm, beginning on November 11th, 1933, topsoil from Oklahoma was blown all the way to Chicago, where over 12 million pounds of it fell on the city like snow. On Black Sunday, April 14, 1935, dust storms were reported from the Canadian border to Texas. Newspaper reporters throughout the affected region wrote that they couldn't see five feet in front of them. Some of them couldn't see their hands in front of their faces for all of the blowing dust. The agricultural disaster that became known as the Dust Bowl caused an exodus from this high plains region. But the disaster was not just agricultural. Of the 116,000 refugee families who were surveyed by California officials on their way into California, they were met at the border and they had to fill out some forms, only four out of 10 were farmer families. A full third of the heads of the households who fled from Oklahoma and Kansas and Nebraska and Texas were white collar professionals. The reason for this is that when the farms blew away, the whole regional economy was wiped out. In the US, there were some groups who saw communism as a potential solution to all of these problems. And there were some opponents of communism who saw fascism as a potential way to prevent 
the communists from gaining power. Um, luckily, U.S. democracy proved stable enough that the voters were able to simply change the party in power in the 1932 elections, uh, from the Republicans to the Democrats. Franklin Roosevelt was inaugurated president in March of 1933, just a few weeks after Hitler took power in Germany. Uh, Roosevelt was neither a communist nor a fascist, although he did accept a fairly high degree of government intervention in the economy to try to alleviate the worst effects of this crisis that he inherited. Franklin Delano Roosevelt had been born into an old, wealthy New York family, and he actually surprised many, and he angered many people in his class who called him a class traitor by embracing government intervention as a way to try to save the economy and by spending government money to put people back to work, and by using the government to regulate business. Most people believed, however, that Roosevelt was saving capitalism rather than imposing socialism. Many of the New Deal agencies and programs that he started are still with us today. Roosevelt was keenly aware of the role that Wall Street had played in the crisis, in starting the problem and then in not helping to correct it. And he wanted to restore confidence in the banking system. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, FDIC, is an insurance policy uh, paid for by the banks that guarantees that the depositors will receive their savings, uh, nowadays up to $250,000 per person in case of a bank failure. Uh, the FDIC helped to bring an end to runs on banks and increased people's confidence in the banking system. The Securities and Exchange Commission, SEC, was a new agency that would oversee Wall Street. New regulations put an end to pooling and other forms of stock manipulation and insider trading in order to restore public confidence in the markets. Borrowing money to invest in stocks on margin is still closely regulated. And finally, the Glass-Steagall Act prevented banks from dabbling in securities and in the insurance industry. Um, its repeal in the 1990s is seen as one of the causes of the 2008 financial crisis. In agriculture, the Roosevelt administration began paying farmers not to overplant and stabilized farm prices with the Agricultural Adjustment Act. Agricultural extension programs also began teaching new farming methods to prevent another future dust bowl. Federal government programs also put people back to work. The Works Progress Administration, WPA, included large building projects like the Hoover Dam and the Golden Gate Bridge, uh, but also many smaller local projects like sidewalks and post offices and schools. The Civilian Conservation Corps, the CCC, which I mentioned earlier, attracted uh, unemployed young men to mainly work in reforestation projects 
and making improvements on national parks and state parks. When you see long straight lines of 85-year-old trees in the United States, oftentimes you're seeing the work of the CCC. The Tennessee Valley Authority, TVA, focused on developing an entire region of the Tennessee River Valley. TVA dams controlled uh, the flood of rivers to prevent flooding and to provide hydroelectric power to factories and towns and rural homes. So rural electrification also became a priority. And since it ran a multi-state project, TVA was naturally a federal agency. Governments throughout the world actually sent their representatives to America to see how this worked. This became a model program. Finally, the Social Security Administration was established in 1935 to support widows and their children and to provide for the elderly with a government pension so that they would be able to retire without being a burden on their children. The ability to retire and have a secure government pension convinced a lot of older workers that it was okay to leave their jobs. And this opened a lot of jobs to younger workers who could then afford a government-backed mortgage through the new Federal Housing Administration, FHA. Uh, the Roosevelt administration also, for the first time, encouraged labor union organizing under the Wagner Act. Instead of the government siding with industry and sending in troops to put down strikes, as it had in the past and even in the recent past under Hoover, the Wagner Act legalized unions and strikes, and it set up the National Labor Relations Board the NLRB, to arbitrate between industry and labor in contract disputes. Organized labor then became an important political ally of Roosevelt and ultimately of the Democratic Party throughout the rest of the, the 20th century as a result of this. But the New Deal is not what happened in Europe. In the 1920s, Germans had been electing moderate social democratic governments. Following the chaos of their hyperinflation, the further disruption caused by the collapse of Wall Street and world trade especially affected German industry. Loans and markets dried up and millions of employees in German industry lost their jobs. Hyperinflation had already wiped out people's life savings. And previously, Communists and especially National Socialists, the Nazis, the German fascists, had been fringe parties and had been easy for Germans to ignore. But as Germans became increasingly desperate, they began to look for solutions, and many of them began to look for easy solutions, or at least for somebody to blame for the crisis in world capitalism. Political conflicts took to the streets and Social Democrats fought communists, and both groups fought the Nazis. Government instability led to frequent elections as governments continued to fall. Moderates coalesced around a chancellor named Heinrich Brüning, uh, who was a conservative from the Catholic Center Party, uh, positively Hooverish in his tight-fisted social and economic policies. 
1932, another round of elections uh, when no party won a clear majority, which wasn't entirely unusual, but for the first time, the German voters mostly backed either communists or Nazis. Meanwhile, intrigues began swirling around the aging president, Otto von Hindenburg, uh, who, like a king in a parliamentary uh, monarchy, was responsible for choosing a politician to take the role of chancellor and form a government. The octogenarian Hindenburg took the advice of aristocratic nationalists who were his allies. And in January 1933, he called on Adolf Hitler, the leader of the Nazi party, to form a government. The aristocrats apparently believed that Hitler could be controlled. Of course, Hitler had other ideas. Hitler and the Nazis were like the Italian fascists in their anti-liberal, anti-democratic, and hyper-nationalist ideology, and in their support of the idea of totalitarianism uh, as a ruling idea for the nation. They even had their own paramilitary force with uniforms and insignia. Uh, the Nazis also appealed to many voters because of their consistent opposition to the Versailles Treaty, which nearly all Germans blamed for their economic distress. And not without some reason. Uh, but for the Nazis, the Versailles Peace was a national humiliation, and it was the real reason that Germans were unemployed. They blamed the liberals also and the Social Democrats who had signed the treaty for having stabbed Germany in the back. As Hitler took control, new elections were called for March of 1933. Uh, during the campaign season leading up to that, the Reichstag building was burned to the ground by a disgruntled communist. And Hitler used this incident to arrest communist politicians and to really gin up the people against the threat of communism. Uh, although, once again, the Nazis did fail to win a majority in the election, Hitler was granted nearly dictatorial powers. He outlawed the Communist Party, and then he outlawed the Social Democratic Party. By the end of the year, all the other parties were also outlawed or dissolved. By mid-1934, Hitler had purged his own National Socialist Party of what he called left Nazis, uh, eliminating all organized opposition to himself. He was declared the leader, Führer, of Germany, and then Hindenburg died the following year, which allowed Hitler to combine the offices of president and chancellor, so that the democratic Weimar constitution was basically at an end. This was a remarkable achievement for Hitler who up until World War I had been just a frustrated Austrian artist living in Vienna, absorbing extremist German nationalist conspiracy theories and anti-Semitic ideology. He had joined the German army at the beginning of the First World War. After the armistice, 
only having risen to the rank of corporal, uh, he was assigned to the army to observe and to report on a variety of different political groups that were beginning to raise their heads in Munich. Instead of just reporting on them, he joined one of them, the National Socialist German Workers' Party, uh, which quickly became the National Socialist Party. And he quickly became a very effective speaker and a leader of that party. In 1920, Hitler adopted the ancient Hindu swastika symbol in his design for the party's flag. After participating in a coup attempt that failed in Munich, Hitler was imprisoned in 1923. And while in prison, he wrote Mein Kampf, which is German for my struggle. Actually, he didn't write it. He dictated it to his cellmate who wrote it down. Mein Kampf is an outline of his plan for the domination of the pure German Aryan race over all of Europe. Hitler's anti-Semitism blended with his hatred of foreign Bolshevism, and he imagined the German Aryans as Europe's defense against both Jews and socialism. Uh, Nazi focus on racial hatred set them apart from the fascists in Italy, really, although there were anti-Semitic ideas being tossed around by other nationalists and fascists throughout Europe. Still, in the mid-1930s, Hitler's popularity in Germany was not mainly based on his Nazi racism. Instead, Germans appreciated the political and social and economic stability that the regime began to bring and the ways that Hitler was continuing to thumb his nose at the Versailles Treaty. The Nazis suppressed labor unions, but work projects like building the Autobahn put men back to work. And then Hitler called for an affordable people's car. And in 1937, his government built a state-owned factory to manufacture a design that had been created by German race car designer Ferdinand Porsche. The original Volksauto, as it was called, was renamed uh, Volkswagen, of course. Um, the Volksauto would be available to German citizens for $396 through a government-sponsored savings plan. Germans would save five marks a week from their pay and it would accumulate and they would get a car. Rebuilding the military also provided jobs and opportunities. Uh, Hitler expanded the army well beyond the 100,000 man limit set by the Versailles Treaty and he added air and submarine forces, which was a further violation. In early 1936, when he moved troops to the French border, the Allies did not respond militarily, much to the surprise of many of the German generals. Then Berlin successfully hosted the Olympics in July of 1936, showcasing the regime to the world and also starting the tradition of lighting an Olympic torch in Greece and having it carried by relay runners to the venue of the games. Uh, Germans felt pride that Hitler had made them great again. German Jews, however, suffered under the regime. 
Almost immediately after Hitler became chancellor, the Nazis called for a boycott of Jewish-owned businesses, and Jews were fired from government positions. The 1935 Nuremberg Laws prohibited marriage between Germans and Jews and defined Jewishness based on, based on ancestry rather than religious preference. Many Nazified German towns encouraged Jews to leave so that they could put up signs declaring that they were Jew-free. A trickle of German Jews were able to emigrate. Artists and actors and film directors moved to Hollywood, while academics like Albert Einstein found positions in U.S. universities. But most of Europe and the world did not accept Jewish immigrants. Anti-Semitism was an international problem, although it was not as violent and discriminatory everywhere as it was under the Nazi regime. Even in the United States, Jews were subject to quotas at universities. They weren't allowed to buy houses in certain neighborhoods, and they were denied service at hotels and resorts and barred from many private clubs and associations. We will talk more about that when we talk about the Second World War, of course. But in the meantime, what's going on in the world's biggest nation by population? In 1911, as you'll recall, Sun Yat-sen and his Xintai Revolution had finally overthrown the empire that had ruled over China for over 2,000 years. But the revolutionaries were not strong enough to install an effective government throughout China. Warlords, army generals, and minor regional nobles quickly organized troops in order to defend their territory. However, they weren't really interested in respecting or supporting the new republic, which many of them saw as a European-style novelty. And the power struggle between Sun Yat-sen and General Yan Shikai, the head of the Imperial Army, Yuan won. Instead of Sun Yat-sen, a warlord became president of the republic under the new constitution. In the chaos of the Republic's early years, many remote imperial provinces of the Chinese Empire were able to establish themselves as new nations, separate from China. Mongolia is still independent to this day, while Tibet was reconquered by Mao in the 1950s and is still seeking to get independent again. Yuan wasn't content to be the president of a republic. He declared himself emperor. Uh, but then he died in 1916, and cliques and civil conflict broke out once again between the republic and the warlords. When Yuan had declared himself emperor, additional provinces had broken away in protest. Uh, Sun and the nationalists experienced a resurgence on May 4th 1919, when students revolted in Beijing against the Versailles Treaty at the end of World War I, because Japan received the German protectorates, German colonial territory in the Shandong province, rather than China. These demonstrations marked an important modernizing moment for the New Republic. Uh, later that year, Sun Yat-sen returned to form the Kuomintang, 
the Nationalist Party, uh, inspired by this May 4th movement. By 1921, Sun had reestablished the Republic in Canton. Meanwhile, Western-educated intellectuals who had read about, or some of them even visited the Soviet Union, began organizing the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, in Shanghai, uh, supporting Sun and the Kuomintang against the warlords. As the struggle continued against the Northern warlords, Sun died of cancer in 1925, and his protege, General Chiang Kai-shek, took over the Kuomintang. Chiang was a capable leader who was able to unite his movement and the government. In 1927, Chiang married a U.S.-educated Chinese woman named Sung Mei Ling, who was very well known in American society, and she was very effective at getting American public opinion to side with Chang and the Kuomintang. She also happened to be the sister of Sun Yat-sen's widow, Sung Ching Ling. By 1927, the northern expedition against the warlords was concluded successfully, led by Chang and the CCP and with support of the Soviet Union. A few months later, a new civil war began in China. Chang had decided to turn against his communist allies, uh, who he feared were gaining strength and strengthening their support, especially in the cities. Uh, Chang purged CCP members from the Kuomintang and uh, beginning in the commercial and financial center in Shanghai, he began rounding up and executing many communist leaders. Uh, imprisoning others. In 1931, the Japanese military invaded Manchuria and created the puppet kingdom of Manchukuo. They actually installed the last emperor of the Qing dynasty, Puyi, as the monarch of Manchukuo. Uh, the Chinese Republic, of course, in the midst of a new civil war, was not in a position to fight the Japanese or defend this territorial incursion. With so many communists being imprisoned or executed or on the run, Mao Zedong, a charismatic leader of peasant origin, uh, who originally worked as a school teacher, began to rise to prominence in the CCP in the early 1930s. The nationalist armies continued reconquering parts of China, and ultimately they surrounded the communists in the Jiangxi province in southern China in October 1934. The communist forces broke out of the trap and began what became known as the Long March. Over 370 days, the communist Red Army covered 5,600 miles, including some of the most rugged terrain in all of China. Most of the people who set out on the Long March didn't complete it and didn't arrive at their destination in northern China. But they picked up so much support along the way that they built a new Red Army. And along the way, Mao Zedong gradually emerged as the leader of this army and the leader of the Chinese Communist Party. 
along with Red Army commander Zhou Enlai. Uh, Zhou would become the first premier of the People's Republic of China, and Mao would become the chairman of the Chinese Communist Party. The reason that Japan was able to invade Manchuria was the result of what we've seen in previous chapters, this embracing of Western technology and Western government styles, to some extent. Really, Japan went in the opposite direction of China in the late 19th and early 20th century. By 1910, the Japanese Empire had extended its territory to include the Ryukyu Islands and Taiwan after having defeated the Russians, as you recall, in the 1905 Russo-Japanese War and take, taking control of the Korean Peninsula. So they're expanding their territory dramatically. Uh, Japanese industrial goods, especially textiles, found ready markets in the U.S. and in other parts of the world. And as part of the victorious allied coalition in the Great War, the Japanese were awarded the Marshall Islands and the Shandong Peninsula that they had taken from Germany. Although their, their proposal at Versailles to condemn racism was ignored by the Allied diplomats in Paris. Japan had a parliamentary monarchy with political parties, trade unions, a parliament, and a divine emperor. In international affairs, the civilian government joined its World War I allies to try to decrease the militarization of the Pacific and East Asia, and even agreed to maintain a smaller navy in the Pacific than either the U.S. or Great Britain did um, in a Washington Naval Treaty in 1922. Increasingly ultra-nationalist officers in the Army and the Navy protested this civilian government and the way it had negotiated this treaty. Uh, they advocated that Japan should dominate East Asia rather than Westerners uh, and should eventually replace European rule and influence. Uh, Asia for the Asians was a motto that they would use as they turned their attention to more regions in Asia that needed liberating. In the following years, the nationalists gradually took control of the Japanese government using the same type of anti-democratic, anti-Bolshevik rhetoric as the European fascists had. In late 1936, Japan united with Germany in an anti-Comintern treaty in opposition to the Soviet Union and its communist international. The ideology of the Japanese militarists was similar to the Nazis in its racism as well. They believed that it was the destiny of the Yamato people, the Japanese, to dominate East Asia and to replace the Europeans as the controlling group. Just as Hitler claimed a similar role for his pure Aryans in Europe. The Japanese empire would bring order and prosperity to Asia for the Asians, as they said through what they called the Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere. Uh, Japanese imperialism actually seemed like a somewhat attractive proposition to some people in East Asia who wanted to rid themselves of 
European imperial rule. A different approach was tried by the Indians. As I've mentioned previously, the British had been training and educating locals in India for generations as soldiers and police and government administrators and professionals in the 19th century and into the 20th century. Uh, and they claimed that they were preparing the Indians for eventual self-rule. When the promised self-rule would begin started to become a source of debate and conflict between the colonizers and the colonized people. In 1885, British educated Indian reformers organized the Indian Congress Party to protest unfair treatment of Indians by British people. They believed that they were already administering the country and no longer needed British bureaucrats to tell them what to do. In 1909, British reforms provided for Indian representation in provincial legislatures. And as I've mentioned before, Indian soldiers took part in many of the British campaigns during the Great War, especially in Africa and the Ottoman Empire. 74,000 Indians died out of 700,000 who served. Uh, after the war, this service also inspired increased agitation for independence. The politics of the Congress Party was greatly influenced by Mohandas Gandhi and his tactic of nonviolent civil disobedience. Gandhi was a perfect example of a colonial person serving the empire. After being educated as a lawyer in England, he had lived in South Africa for 25 years, serving the growing population of Indians living and working there. However, reacting to racial discrimination in South Africa, he began to organize on behalf of non-whites. Gandhi was already famous for his actions in South Africa when he returned to India in 1915 and immediately joined the Congress party uh, and also embraced asceticism and simplicity as a way of life. The following year, the mostly Hindu Congress party united with Muhammad Ali Jinnah's Muslim League in what was really a sincere attempt to create a party that represented all of British India. Popular calls for complete independence from Britain were accelerated by the horrific Amritsar massacre in 1919 in which the British army killed hundreds, possibly a thousand or more, unarmed civilians. Increasing protests against British rule had led to oppressive measures, including a prohibition on public gathering. In Amritsar, a religious celebration where people did gather in public was interpreted as a political demonstration by the local British administrator and he ordered his troops to open fire. In the 1920s, the Congress party organized the non-cooperation movement, encouraging a complete boycott of British goods. Indian raw cotton was exported to Great Britain, where it was made into textiles that were then shipped back and sold to the Indian people. The Congress party argued that factories could easily be built in India to serve this local market. 
1930, the Congress Party leader, Jawaharlal Nehru, openly called for complete independence. The following year, Gandhi led his famous salt march against the British salt monopoly. The British controlled the production and the sale of salt, and they had actually outlawed Indians producing their own salt. So Gandhi led a massive march to the sea to illegally make salt by drying ocean water. Nonviolently disobeying an absurd law effectively highlighted the futility of Britain's position in India. The British responded with the Government of India Act in 1935, which established regional legislatures. Voting was arranged by religious and social caste categories, again applying the divide and conquer method that the British were so good at using in their colonies and had been using since the 19th century. Focusing Indians on their religious differences would actually have disastrous effects both in the short term and in the long run down to today. Nevertheless, the more inclusive Congress party did start winning regional elections in 1937. It's important to consider as we continue looking at totalitarian fascism and communism, especially as they play out in World War II and the Cold War, that Gandhi and the All India Congress Party represented an option and an alternative of effective nonviolent civil disobedience that was successful in achieving social goals. They were radically in favor of independence, but they also encouraged democracy. And the asceticism and simplicity of Gandhi was an example to be emulated rather than a way of life opposed from above. Indian ideas and techniques would become an example for other struggles by colonized people and by oppressed minorities, uh, which directly influenced the course of decolonization after World War II and the struggle for civil rights by African Americans in the United States, also after World War II. So we'll talk about both of those things after we talk about World War II next week. But that's all for now. So I hope that's been interesting. Thanks for listening. I'll see you again next time.